so we are still in Isaiah. We may be in Isaiah for the duration. We're in chapter 9, and we didn't quite finish. I think we finished through verse 17, and then quit. So what's happened is Ahaz is the king of Judah, and Remaliah, who is the king of the northern kingdom, Israel, and Reason, who is the king of Damascus, have allied together against the southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom is all upset, and God sends Isaiah to calm him down. And so now the section we're in, we're going to be talking about what's going to happen with Assyria, what's going to happen to the northern kingdom, and the reasons for all of that. And we were in chapter 9, and we got all the way down to verse 18, talking about that subject. So I'm going to pick it up now at verse 18, and we'll finish the chapter and plow right along. For wickedness burns like a fire, it consumes briars and thorns, it kindles the thickets of the forest, they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire, no one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. They devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. First off, his hand is stretched out still. Notice that's what was the end of verse 17. All this his anger has not turned away, his hand is stretched out still. And then at the end of verse 21, for all this his anger is not turned away, his hand is stretched out still. First off, he or his hand is the Lord's hand, God. And in order to understand that, the easiest place to figure that out is Leviticus 26. And we talked about that a couple of times ago, I believe. There are two rebukes in the Torah, Leviticus 26 and then the end of Deuteronomy, blessings and cursings. Leviticus 26 is somewhat more hopeful than Deuteronomy is because Deuteronomy doesn't actually ever promise a redemption, whereas Leviticus does. Let me pick it up in verse 21, Leviticus 26, 21. Then if you walk contrary to me, and, and walking contrary to me literally means if you treat me casually, which is to say you ascribe to Mother Nature or something, the things that I have done. You treat the blessings that I have given you as if, oh, yeah, that's just God. We don't need to do anything with that. So if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins, and I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your road shall be deserted. That sounds pretty grim. Mm -hmm. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your... So the whole point of all of the stuff that is happening against Israel here in Leviticus 26 is to get their attention. This idea is if you treat me casually or if you ascribe to chance, much like we do, well, I mean, the weather, nice today, bad today, just 
random weather, all sorts of scientific explanations, but we don't ascribe it to God. We don't describe rain and due season and all that stuff to God. We simply say, oh yeah, the weather pattern is X, Y, or Z. In other words, all of the blessings that come upon Israel are simply the result of Mother Nature. And that's what God is talking about when he says, if you walk contrary to me. And so what he's doing is he is slapping them upside the head and saying, pay attention, because you really need to ascribe the things that are happening to you to my action. And if you continue not to do that, it's going to just continually get worse because you're not paying attention. The whole deal here is not so much to punish them as to get their attention. Of course, he doesn't get their attention. So at the end of the day, what winds up happening is they go into exile. Right, so now back to Isaiah 18. Wickedness burns like a fire, it consumes briars and thorns, it kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Notice that it starts small. And what happens is it expands until you have a conflagration. So what he's saying here is a little bit of wickedness starts off as a small brush fire. Left unchecked, it will then continue to grow until it consumes the entire forest. And the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. So this is not a literal fire so much as the spread of wickedness in Israel, and it's like a consuming fire. They slice meat on the right but are still hungry. They devour on the left but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. And you see this other places in Scripture where they go out with lots of seed but they harvest little. The idea is they're trying in the natural to do things to make their situation better, but since their problem is not in the natural, their problem is supernatural, none of the stuff that they try works. And so they turn against each other. Manasseh devours Ephraim. Manasseh and Ephraim, remember, are brothers. Mm -hmm. They are the two big tribes in the northern kingdom. So Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. So you have civil war, uh, not necessarily a shooting war, but the idea is they are dealing with each other not as brothers but as adversaries. And together they are against Judah. Well, that's what we've been talking about all along, where the northern kingdom under Remaliah has allied with Syria and is coming down against Judah. Then the last part of verse 21, for all this his anger is not turned away, his hand is stretched out still. And that phrase, as I said before, should take you back to Leviticus, which is to say all of these things that are happening to you are by design. God has designed them. He has designed them to get your attention. He has told you in the Torah how it works. So what he's saying in Isaiah here is, I told you in the Torah how it works. I told you what's going to happen. If you do not change your ways and return to me, my hand is going to continue to be stretched out against you. And so it reads very much parallel to what's going on in Leviticus 26, where God says, I'm going to do this, 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 and this. And if you then walk contrary to me, and I'm going to jack it up sevenfold. And if you still walk contrary to me, I'm going to jack it up another sevenfold. So the idea here of the hand being stretched out still is God's hand is on them, and it is on them to get their attention, and they're not paying attention. So we're all the way down to chapter 10. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice, and to rob the poor of my people of their right. 
that widows may be their spoil, and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment, in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help, and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Same phrase again. What he's talking about here is government that has turned to prey on its own people, much like what we have going on today, where government has turned to prey upon the people. There's a book I've mentioned before. It's very good. It's written by a Brit who was a psychiatrist in London. It's called Life at the Bottom. And he talks about the welfare machine in London. And one of the things that he says is the most consistent predictor of whether a man will abuse his wife or girlfriend is how many tattoos does he have. He'd have these psychiatric nurses that worked for him who would fall for these tattooed thugs, and he would say, he's going to beat you up. And off she'd go, and she'd come back six months later all beat up. But back to our point here, this guy who wrote the book was talking about the welfare machine in London. And they had a homeless shelter. And the homeless shelter was just sort of like what you expect, seedy, smelled, etc. And there was a door marked staff only. You go through the door marked staff only and you are in a modern office with everything clean and painted and people bustling around, doing stuff, filling in paperwork, all that kind of stuff. And the only thing that separates them from this seedy pit where the homeless are sleeping at night is this door marked staff only. And the point there is the people who are helping, quote unquote, are in fact living very well off of the poor. There's a phrase that says the poor are a gold mine. So what's happening here in Israel is woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees. That's bad laws, laws that are designed to oppress the people for the benefit of the government, to turn aside the needy from justice. Well, that's pretty obvious. To rob the poor of my people of their right and widows may be their spoil. One of the things that happens in courts is there is a brisk business in finding vulnerable older people who have money and having somebody appointed by the court as a guardian ad litem at a very nice salary. He then consumes the elder person's substance until the elder person is essentially broke and has to go into a homeless shelter, in which case the leech moves on, and it's all sanctioned by the courts. In fact, it's set up by the courts. Before all this started, they could have afforded someplace nice to stay, but once this guardian has gotten hold of them and consumed all of their substance, it's just terrible. What we're talking about here in the beginning of chapter 10 is this kind of stuff, where the government is basically turned on the people. And they do it in the name of compassion, they do it in the name of social justice, they do it in the name of whatever. It's all very high sounding, but it is leeches. And then, what will you do in the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help, and where will you leave your wealth? In other words, these people have become wealthy at the expense of the poor. Let me give you a couple of proverbs just for grins. 
Proverbs 10, 15. A rich man's wealth is a strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. Now what that says is that wealth is an insulator. Wealth is something that protects you from the shocks of the world. Go to 11.4. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. In the one case, we have a rich man's wealth is a strong city, but we say that riches do not profit in the day of wrath. And that's what Isaiah is saying here. You guys have generated lots and lots of personal wealth at the expense of the defenseless in your society, and you regard that wealth that you have accumulated as your strong city, the thing that is going to protect you from shocks. And if you look at the people in Washington or Denver who run, these are very wealthy people living in the wealthiest counties in their area, and they regard their wealth as a strong city. In other words, we are not going to be impoverished. We don't care about illegal immigration because it's never going to affect us. We don't care about bad industrial policy because government always prospers. And we live in a place with a doorman. So these folks regard the wealth that they have accumulated in a corrupt way as their strong city. But what God is saying in Proverbs 11.4 is riches do not profit in the day of wrath, which is to say when you're up to your hips and hairy Assyrians, it doesn't matter how much money you have because you are going into exile or you're going to die, And which is what he says in Isaiah. He says, nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. The Assyrians are coming down. They are going to take the northern kingdom out and the only two choices all you wealthy people have is either surrender and crouch among the prisoners and be carried off somewhere in chains or die with everybody else that gets slain in the invasion. Them's your two choices, bud. There's no third choice is what God is saying. And notice at the end of verse 4, for all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. That same phrase again. What Israel is supposed to be doing is seeking God's face. When Israel is out of place and not doing what they're supposed to do, God's face is hidden. It's called hesterpani, the hidden face. There are people who look at God as a giant ATM in the sky. Those people are seeking God's hand. They want God to stretch out his hand and do something for them, as opposed to seeking God's face, which is to say, I want to have a relationship with God. I want to know God, and in knowing God, I want to have a loving, productive relationship with him, and a byproduct of that relationship is, oh yeah, he will bless you simply because you're his friend, whereas those who are simply seeking his hand are looking for blessing without the responsibility of getting really to know him. So we're all the way down to chapter 10, verse 5. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send them. Against the people of my wrath I command them. To take spoil and seize plunder. To tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? 
is not Kelno like Carchemish, is not Hamath like Arpad, is not Samaria like Damascus. As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images are greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? So, first off, back in verse 5. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. So what he's saying is, Assyria, I am using you as a rod to chastise my people. Now, the problem is, Assyria doesn't understand that she is being used by God. Assyria is of the opinion that he's really hot stuff. I'm using Assyria in the sense of the king of Assyria. So what he thinks is, whoa, I am really hot stuff. I can do anything I want. Verse 7, but he does not so intend and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. The power of Assyria is that God has raised Assyria up for the purpose of chastising the northern kingdom. Assyria goes way beyond what is intended because Assyria doesn't recognize that he is simply God's tool. So what's going to happen next is Assyria is going to get taken down just like Babylon got taken down because Babylon falls into the same trap. For example, in Babylon, the Babylonian captivity was prophesied to last 70 years. That's not actually what's said. What's actually said is the Babylonian empire lasts 70 years. God whistles that empire up They go sand off Judah, and 70 years later, that empire is gone. They had served their purpose. So the 70 years was not just the time decreed for Judah to repay the Sabbaths that they had not allowed the land to have. It was also the length of time that the Babylonian empire was going to exist, because that's all the longer God needed it. So the idea that God whistles up Gentile empires to do his bidding, especially with respect to Israel is demonstrated in history. History matches the Bible here. Now, is not Kalno like Carchemish? Carchemish is a city on the Euphrates River. Carchemish is up in the northern regions of the Euphrates River, and it's the scene of a number of major battles. So there's a battle there between the Egyptians and either the Assyrians or the Babylonians. But the whole point is Kalno, Carchemish, Hamath, Apod, Samaria and Damascus. In other words, I've taken one, I can take the other. So Samaria being like Damascus, Samaria is south of Damascus. Samaria is in Israel. Damascus is north of Israel. It's the same place it is today. And so as the Assyrians are coming down from the north, the first place they take is Damascus. And having taken Damascus, what's Samaria? Is Samaria not like Damascus? I just took Damascus, I'll take Samaria while I'm at it. That's the sense of the phrase. Verse 12, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. Everybody understand what I just said? The whole business with the king of Assyria boasting, you know, is not Samaria like Damascus or Kalno like Carchemish. In other words, these are all dust under my army's feet. They're all going down. I'm a real hot dog. And what God is saying, well, no. When I'm done, I'm going to turn my attention to you. For he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, 
For I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. This is the king of Assyria. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken. So I have gathered all the earth. There is none that moved a wing or opened a mouth or chirped. One of the things that people who raise birds do is they eat eggs. Little known fact, when a dove is sacrificed in the tabernacle or the temple, it's a kosher bird and it can be sacrificed. And the procedure to sacrifice a pigeon is the priest tears its head off and then removes the crop. A bird has got a crop in in its neck, which is a sack. And what they do is they go and they pick up grain and stuff like that and they stuff it in their crop where it stores seeds and then feeds them down into its gizzard where it gets ground up and processed and turned into bird poop. What the priest does when he sacrifices a pigeon is he takes the crop and he pulls it out and he throws that aside in the ash pile. That is not kosher to sacrifice because we don't know where that pigeon has been foraging And he may have foraged from somebody else's field, so that grain may be technically stolen. It didn't belong to the person who was doing the sacrifice. So they take the crop and they discard it for exactly that reason. The point is, this metaphor of gathering eggs and no one moved a wing and no one opened the mouth or chirped, what he's saying is, I came in and I stole the eggs out of the nest, with the eggs being the wealth of the nations that I have conquered, And my army is so powerful that nobody dared chirp when I stole their eggs. Verse 15. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? So the idea here is, in the previous verses, the king of Assyria was boasting about his power and his wealth and his conquests. What God is now saying is, uh, should the axed boast over the one who uses it to chop wood with? I'm the one that's chopping the wood. The axe is my tool. The axe doesn't get to brag about all the wood it's cut because the axe is simply my tool to cut the wood. It wouldn't cut any wood were I not the one who was wielding it. And similarly, a rod should wield him who lifts it. Rod is again a symbol of authority or a shepherd's rod or whatever. And the idea that the rod wields the shepherd as opposed to the shepherd wielding the rod. And what he's saying here is the rod has gotten itself in a position where it thinks it's wielding the shepherd instead of the other way around. 16. Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors. And under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of a fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy, both soul and body. It will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. By the way, there's three kings of Assyria that are involved in the destruction of the northern kingdom, and lay siege against Jerusalem. Sennacherib is one, 
Sargon, I think, is one too. Anyway, the last one who goes up against Jerusalem is the one that this judgment falls on. And he is driven back to Nineveh in disarray after the Lord rebuffs him in front of Jerusalem. And it turns out that he is then killed by his own family. So this, this, this literally comes true. Verse 17, the light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame. It will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day, the glory of his force. Now remember we started this earlier with the wicked and wickedness being like a small flame among brush and it catches on and burns down the whole forest. We have a giant chiasm here, not a giant chiasm, it's sort of a medium-sized chiasm. So we started with the same metaphor in it, first place it was sin that started off as a brush fire and spread and pretty soon the whole forest was consumed, the forest being Israel. Here we have the Holy One of Israel becomes a fire and the Holy One will burn and devour. It starts with the thorns and briars just like it did above as a brush fire and then goes into the forest until it's destroyed the whole nation. Verse 20, in that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. As we were going through this, we were talking about the idea that this chastisement was intended to be redemptive. God is trying to get their attention, and if he gets their attention, good. If he does not get their attention, then everybody goes into exile. And what's happened is he gets the attention of Judah, but not of Israel. So Israel goes into exile, but Judah repents, and Judah gets another 120-some-odd years before they go into the Babylonian exile. So in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, Israel, be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And again, we know from history, in the Bible both, not that the Bible's not history, that the Assyrian invasion destroys Israel, but comes to a stop at the gates of Jerusalem, and then recedes. And what God is saying is, O my people who dwell in Zion, okay, that's Jerusalem, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with a rod and lift up their staff against you, as the Egyptians did, for a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. This is what Isaiah told Ahaz, Isaiah 7, 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go meet Ahaz, you, you and Sherezus of your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, so forth. So that's where God sends Isaiah to Ahaz and says, Don't worry about Syria and Damascus because I'm going to take them out. And he now tells them in Isaiah 10, furthermore, while you're not worrying about Ephraim and you're not worrying about Damascus, also don't worry about Assyria because I'm going to take them out too. 
picking up at 24 again. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day... His burden will depart from your shoulder, his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. So what he's saying, obviously, as we just said, is the Assyrians are going to come right up to the gates of Jerusalem. But don't worry about it, because once they have dealt with the northern kingdom, my anger, God's anger, will be abated. And so then I will turn to the Assyrians, and I will deal with them and get them out of your face. That's sort of thing one. Verse 26, Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. That refers to Gideon in the book of Judges. And you remember the Midianites had taken the plain of Jezreel, the plain of Israelon, the east-west plain that runs across the northern part of Israel. And they were camped there. And you remember Gideon gets his guys and they have their torches inside of clay jars. And he surrounds the Midianites and has everybody break their clay jars and the torches all flare up and the Midianites think that they're surrounded and they fall to fighting themselves and so forth. That's what's being described here at the Rock of Oreb. Oreb is one of the kings of the Midianites and he was killed and his head was brought back uh, to Israel by Gideon. And then, of course, lifting up his staff over the sea talks about spreading the Red Sea. And you all should have got that one. And then in verse 27, In that day his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. I have no idea what that means, nor does the translator. The Tanakh, the Jewish Publication Society, In that day his burden will drop from your back and his yoke from your neck. The yoke shall be destroyed because of fatness. None of the translators have any real idea what's being said there. What verse 28 talks about is the progress of the Assyrian army as they are coming down from the north. So 28, he has come to Ith, he has passed through Migron, and Michmash he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass at Geba, they lodge for the night. Ramah trembles, Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galim, give attention, O Lysha. O poor Anathoth, Madmena is in flight. The inhabitants of Gibbon flee for safety. This very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. So what we're talking about is the Assyrians coming down and shaking their fist at Jerusalem, which they do, but they don't ever take it. 33. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power, the great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one.